Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's episode that delves into the world of Toronto real estate, equipping property landlords with tools, strategies, and insights to maximize their property investment. Today, we're tackling a very crucial question that many property owners grapple with. Why use a real estate agent to rent out your investment property? We'll explore the benefits of hiring a professional for this undertaking. We'll also delve into tips and tricks on how to rent out your property here in Toronto successfully. So whether you're an experienced property owner or somebody who's just considering renting out your property for the first time, today's episode is tailored for you. We're about to unlock the complexities of the property rental landscape, examining the role of real estate agents and how they can add value, minimize stress, and potentially maximize your income. Here we go. It's the last week of May, 2023. We are Fox Marin Associates, Toronto's most innovative and active brokerage in central and downtown Toronto. We aren't here to regurgitate boring stats. You can find those anywhere. We're here to share what we're seeing going on in the Toronto real estate market in real time on a weekly basis so that you can be in the know and make informed decisions. If you're interested in getting an up-to-the-moment opinion on what's happening in Toronto real estate right now and learning what's going down, boots on the ground, before it becomes a stat, then you're in the right place. My name is Ian Busher. I'm a broker with the FM team. Keeper number handy. This is Corey Marin, in-house hype girl and resident expert listing broker. And a good man to know, Mr. Ralph Fox, our analytical, investor-driven macro picture watcher. We do this every week, so hit that subscribe button and join us for the latest updates every seven days. And boom, for the first time ever, we have got guests. Please allow me to introduce Uh, our good, good friends, Ruben and Jerome, agents from the FM team and experienced leasing experts. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We are absolutely so thrilled to have you here. Ruben and Jerome are two of the three, two of the triad of the new kids on the block at Fox Marin. And they specialize or run uh, as part of uh, their businesses at Fox Marin, our leasing division. And we have uh, a significant amount of investor clients that we've accumulated over the years and that we've taken care of uh, throughout uh, maybe the course of the last decade or so. And Ruben and Jerome last year crushed over 160 leases across central and downtown Toronto. That is just astounding. And if you understand the amount of paperwork, due diligence, back and forth that goes through on these type of transactions, especially when you do it correctly and you look after your client's best interest, which Ruben and Jerome definitely do, it is mind-boggling. So if you're a landlord or an aspiring landlord or even a tenant, this is crazy wealth of knowledge that we're unlocking for you guys here today. So I'm not trying to build this up too much, although I do expect this podcast to go viral today. <laughs> so buckle up your seat belts, and we've got a barn burner for you. And just sit back and listen to what the pros have to say. I'm I'm interested to hear what they're going to say. I'm very Absolutely. interested. Yeah. yeah. We're super pumped to have you both. So thank you so much for joining today. I thought a really good place to start today, first of all, since you're in the hot seat and we're not in the hot seat today, would be to talk about marketing and advertising for your condo or your home to lease. I want to discuss all things strategy. We know that pricing a property for lease can be tricky. So how do you ensure... A home or a condo is adequately adequately priced in comparison to other properties and you're going to market at the right price. How do you deal with that in your landlord clients? What a great question. I'll kick things off if you don't mind, Ruth. Go for it. So like any pricing analysis, whether it's for resale or for rent, it's important to start with the macro. So you start by looking at what's going on in the Toronto real estate market. We do a lot of listings in downtown Toronto condos. So on a monthly basis, we put together a report custom uh, for Fox Marin that gives us an overview of where the rental market is at, how many days on market a property takes to lease, what are the average rents for a studio or one bet, one plus 10. Once we have that macro picture, we turn it over to the more specific comparables for a unit, which Ruben will now talk about. Yeah. So when looking, uh, thank you, Jerome, when looking at the most uh, applicable comparables for a rental property, it's really is, while we do look at the neighborhood, we look at um, the buildings in the immediate surrounding area, but really the best information that we're going to get, if it's available to us, is what has happened in that particular building. And it's really interesting when you look at rentals versus resale. Resale is very much on a price per square foot basis, whereas rentals are much more on a 
what did this one bedroom rent for? What did this two bedroom rent for? And it's really about the use of space rather than the size of space that will determine how to, uh, how to make sure it's properly priced. While pricing is important, and I think we're going to talk about this a little later on, we obviously want to make sure it's marketed and priced appropriately, but it is far from the most important. Okay. And are you adjusting for things like parking or a balcony or the features and finishes of the property? Like do those things, are those accounted for? Are you just strictly looking at bedroom count, washroom count and square footage? Yeah, everything's taken into consideration. If you've got two units in the same building, one leased out last month, that's got a north-facing view, looking over King King Eats, for example, and it's got a parking space and that has a balcony. And we're looking to lease out a unit that doesn't have a balcony and it's south-facing, gets a lot better natural light, and uh, there's no parking space, no balcony with it. We have to factor in those adjustments, say $150 uh, counts for one parking space or a balcony's worth about $40, $50 a month. We factor all those adjustments in to come up with a specific price or current market value for whatever property is we're listing. Okay, that makes sense. One of the things I thought you said, Ruben, that Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to me is while resale is priced per square foot, Mm -hmm. uh, you hear a lot of developers or larger uh, investors try and make sense of the rental market on a per square foot rental basis. That has never, ever, ever resonated with me. And uh, I'm just wondering, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, So I just want to back into that one a little more and, and just get a little more commentary from you guys as to why you think that is. Uh, because it's interesting because in resale, uh, you live and die by price per square foot. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of really smart people at uh, some big companies building purpose-built rentals and they're basing those rental rates or their projected rental rates for the future based on a price per square foot. Of course, if you have a two-bedroom that's a 1,000 square feet and if you have a two-bedroom that's 650 square feet, there's going to be a price difference there. But if the if it's within 100 square feet or so, Really, it's the functionality of the unit. Who's living there? Is it a couple and they need an office? Is it two roommates? It really is tailored to the specific use of the property and who is looking for that one-bedroom space, who is looking for that two-bedroom space. Ultimately, they care about that use and generally not so much about the actual size of the space. And and it's the use that will drive a premium, correct? A hundred percent. And so use as well, um, layout. Layout is the most important thing when it comes to the functionality of a property, of a rental. And for example, typically a condo with an exterior facing bedroom might demand a higher rental rate than one with an interior facing bedroom, even if it has a smaller square footage. That totally makes sense. And so what are the risks involved for property owners in terms of pricing, underpricing, overpricing? And are most landlords looking to get the most amount out of their monthly rental? Or are they looking for a quality candidate, which takes precedent? It's funny. It depends who you talk to. <laughs> if it's an ex- a seasoned, experienced landlord, the first thing they're going to say is, give me the best tenant I can possibly find for my property. If it's a first-time investor landlord, they just did all the math. They put together their spreadsheet and figured out, projected out for the next 15 years what rent they're going to get there. And they, I need to squeeze out every mm-hmm. single dollar from this unit. They say, give me the highest rental rate. I don't care about the tenant. And the main, main difference, well, we'll get into tenant screening and all that in a bit. But when it comes specifically to overpricing or underpricing, there is a major risk with both. Underpricing a property, and we see this happen all the time, mm-hmm. it's such a competitive rental landscape for tenants right now in Toronto that you're getting, if it's a good unit, you're getting 20, 30 showings within the first couple of days of it being on the market. Wow. And it's not uncommon to see 10, 20, sometimes 30 offers on, on a property for rent. And if a property is underpriced by say $500, you're going to get every single person, Joey bag of donuts and all showing up, <laughs> throwing in a, throwing in an offer, uh, to try and get that property. And as a listing agent, as a landlord, you've got to sort through an extraordinary amount of paperwork and tenant profiles to pick from the best. And tenants, they move quick. Uh, the rental market is, moves in an absolute electric pace here in Toronto. And so if a tenant doesn't hear back, their offer has been accepted within 24 hours, it's very well that they could get up, pack up and move on to the next Mm -hmm. property where they're going to get accepted. So if you underprice a unit, you overwhelm yourself with a a crazy amount of uh, rental applications, offers coming in, 
you could end up spending so much time doing due diligence, you miss out on a good tenant because you can't act fast enough. How about overpricing roofs? Overpricing will often just cause a property to sit. Mm-hmm. And so really when you're looking at it and when you're looking at your cost for the, over the course of the year, sure, would it be great if you could eke out an extra hundred or 200 bucks a month? Absolutely. But what happens if your property sits vacant for a month? Mm-hmm. How does your cash flow, how does your cost over the course of those 12 months look? And unless you're able to get for a, let's call it a one bedroom condo, unless you're able to get an extra 250, $300 a month, that's the cost of a month of vacancy. And what a lot of landlords don't realize and what quite often what we see when rental properties are overpriced is that they will sit and they'll sit for a month and they'll be vacant for a month and they'll be vacant for another month. And ultimately, they're going to end up reducing their price and they're going to be in the same position as they were had they just properly priced the property. From the beginning. So would it make sense for a landlord then to have an offer date to consider all of these tenant applications? Do you see that type of thing happening on the rental side? That's a really good question. I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it happen a few times and I don't think it's a good strategy. It's a very frustrating strategy to see when you're representing a tenant because you're basically locking yourselves in or committing your tenants to an offer process for a few days. Um, and if they need to move in somewhere in a week or two weeks or even a month, three days is exceptionally valuable. It's a lot of time in somebody's rental process on the landlord side. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And it's a lot of effort. So you have to be fair to yourself as the landlord. You have to be fair to your listing agent. You also have to be fair to the agent representing the tenant and the tenant themselves. And if you are tying it up for that period of time to do all that due diligence, it's just not worth it for anybody involved. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay, so you mentioned, just to backtrack, Ruben, to something that you said. You said that the rental rate you know, is a big part of the process and the listing, which I totally get. But you mentioned that it's not always the most important factor. Can you expand a little bit on this and tell our viewership a little bit more about your headspace on that? Just to start, nobody is investing or very few people are investing in Toronto condos um, for cash flow. Really, that monthly rental rate should not be at the forefront of their mind. The property should be properly and adequately priced and in accordance to what else has gone on in the market and the building itself. But the most important thing to protect their long-term investment is getting that good quality of tenant and getting the best possible quality tenant possible. Because what happens is if you get somebody who just is willing to pay the most rent, and what happens if they, sure, maybe they pay the rent, but they have poor references. We know that maybe they didn't take the greatest care of the property. Well, what's going to happen when they leave? How much money is the landlord, is the property owner going to need to put into that property before they can either relist it for rent or maybe turn around and list it for sale because they've had such a headache dealing with a terrible tenant that they've just said, hey, you know what? I'm done being a landlord. And so getting that quality tenant is the number one important thing to all of us on this call. I learned that from... uh, from Ralph, I learned that from Jessica on our team and passed it down to the other members of our, of our leasing team. And we will always, if we have two offers or let's any, any amount of offers, but let's just say there are two offers. One of them is for $3,000 a month, but we're not confident in the tenant or we're not fully confident in the tenant. And one of them is for 28.50, but everything checks out their income, their credit. Their references are glowing. 10 times out of 10, 100 out of 100, we are always going to recommend proceeding with the lower offer price. One of the other things popped up in my mind as you were talking, Ruben, is you said there's the financial aspect to the amount of rent a landlord gets and how much of a challenge they could have if the tenant doesn't pay or does damages to the property. What about the mental component? What's it like to be a landlord? mentally, psychologically, and spiritually and have a problem tenant? What, what's that experience yeah. like? And, and how does that affect somebody's when, mental well-being and ability to make money elsewhere as a result of all the time and energy that it sucks up? Yeah, it can be exhausting and it can be all-consuming. And it can really be taxing and stressing and, and any other adjective that you can use to describe the sense of dread that you might feel if you have a problem tenant. 
Um, not to mention just the time. Tenants have all of the rights in Ontario's. Every single one, once they're in the property, even if they stop paying rent completely, it can take a year or more to get to the landlord and tenant board to get them out. And so that is a lot of time. That is a lot of stress. That is a lot of money that a potential landlord, a property owner is going to have to fork out if they have someone in their property who becomes an issue. Yep. And so if you're a first-time landlord, mm-hmm. do you have more rights than the tenant? No, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> if you're in places like Wisconsin or Texas and a tenant doesn't pay rent, the sheriff will show up at that house within a week or two and evict the tenant. Here in Ontario, to go through the whole process dealing with the landlord-tenant board, the delays that have been happening, I've heard six, eight, 12 months to go through an eviction process. To even get a hearing. To even get a hearing, let alone get the eviction process afterwards and all the costs. The feeling of not having any control and mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. You could work as hard as you want. You can you know, try and approach it from any angle. A tenant is in there. They don't want to pay rent and they're playing the system. It is exceptionally taxing on you because you have no control over the situation. That's unique here in Ontario and more specifically even Toronto. Yeah, I remember I had one of my rental properties leased out and almost within the first month, my tenant decided not, opted not to pay. And I was overseas at the time and she lived there for eight months for free. And I hired a paralegal while I was overseas and an agent. I wasn't an agent at the time to try to get her out of there. It was so stressful. And this is like not to date myself, which we often do on this podcast, but we were like literally faxing back and forth across the ocean, different documents. And I was fortunate at the time that there was a co-signer when she leased the property because she had a little bit of credit hiccups on her credit score. So there was a co-signer. So a lien was put on the co-signer's property. And about four years later, that gentleman that co-signed on that lease, because I lost eight months rent on that property, uh, when he went to go sell his condo on Queen's Key, like four years later, that lien was still sitting on his condo and he couldn't sell the property until I was paid back that eight months rent. So I ended up scoring a little bonus later on. But it was so stressful trying to deal with this, especially in archaic times when we just didn't have access to technology and I couldn't do anything about it. So she lived in a beautiful condo for eight months and never paid a cent. It was very, very very stressful. I think I shed many tears over that. And that was a lot of money for me at the time to be away and to have a rental um, with somebody living there and not paying. So I certainly can feel for that. And I know we've had many, many horror stories um, from our landlord clients about uh, tenants that they've dealt with in the past long before they've dealt with our brokerage. And it's it's not fun emotionally at all. It's It's absolutely horrible. I have one other question just for Jerome. Mm. Uh, Given your commercial, your extensive commercial background prior to moving into residential in Fox Marin, how would you differentiate a scenario with a problem tenant from commercial real estate versus Mm -hmm. a landlord of residential real estate? Let's say somebody hadn't paid rent for a month in a residential situation and in a commercial situation. How would those two situations play out? Well, residential... Another month would go by, and then another month would go by, and then another month would go by. Probably 10, 20 emails would get out to the tenant, and nothing has happened. You're sitting as a landlord waiting to hear back from the landlord-tenant board to get a hearing so that you can hopefully make a case to get your money back and evict the tenant. Very rarely do you get your money back. Commercial space, somebody doesn't pay their rents. A chain goes on their door the next day. (laughs) A chain. They... They no longer access the property. They broke their business agreement, which is different. It's not uh, protected under the Residential Tenancy Act like tenants are. And it's a business transaction. Somebody doesn't pay for something, they don't get what they were supposed to pay for. And that's it. Uh, There is emotion involved in residential. There is not emotion. There's business decisions involved in the commercial world. I love the chain. Simply business. Back to marketing and advertising quickly. Let's just loop us back in there. So what kind of property improvements do you recommend for your landlord clients when they are preparing the property for sale? Are you telling them that they need to paint it? Are they having to do upgrades? They need to do their deep clean? Like, How do you attract these ideal tenants? Yeah, Rubes and I were just talking about this uh, just, yeah. before the, just before the call. Every situation is different. And you have two kind of categories here. You've got a property that's currently tenanted and you have a property that's vacant. 
If a, if a property's tenanted, there's just not a lot you can do until the tenant moves out. And it's not uncommon for us to recommend, depending on the condition of the unit, for a landlord to let an existing tenant move out before going in, fixing up the property, which is usually, you know, uh, freshly painting it, deeply cleaning it, you know, replacing any light bulbs, maybe light fixtures, and then putting it on the market for lease so you can get good photos out of it and show the property in its highest and best. Property's vacant. What do you tell them, groups? If the property's vacant, you go in, you do a walkthrough and you take notes. How do the walls look? What's, uh, what's the condition of the oven? Mm-hmm. Um, what does it smell again, like? Again, white fixtures. Does it smell? Yeah. Does it need to be aired out? Whatever it may be. And if it's or vacant, replaced. it's just a whole lot easier. Yeah, or replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, the way a property will present when any potential tenant goes to see it, it will attract that same type of tenant. So if a tenant walks in and the place is in really crappy quality, mm-hmm. they're going to say, hey, the landlord doesn't really care much about this. Or they're going to say, oh, this is kind of how I live right now. Now I have the ability just to kind of continue down that path of not taking great care of this space. If somebody walks in and if they see a freshly painted, freshly cleaned, nice and sparkly rental property, they're going to be attracted to that if that's how they live. They're going to say, oh, this looks great. I'm going to want to try to keep it as as neat and as tidy as possible. And, and look, even the best tenants, tenants never take care of a property as well as owners do. But if you are able to put in all that legwork in the front, off the bat, and do all that prep, prep work, make sure it shows in its best possible light, ideally, whenever that tenant moves out, you're going to have a hell of a lot less to do on the other side. And you get pushback from your landlords about suggesting painting and cleaning and all of this sort of stuff? All the time. And it's interesting. The biggest pushback that we get quite frequently, is not painting, it's not cleaning, because a lot of the times they realize that, yeah, you know what, if I were moving into a property, I'd want it freshly painted. I'd want it to be nice and sparkly clean. I wouldn't want to go in and have an oily oven or smelly fridge. The biggest pushback that we get in our recommendations comes to how we actually market the property online. And that comes with professional photos. It's crazy because what, Jerome, you were saying earlier, how many seconds? 2.7 seconds. 2.7 seconds it takes to leave an impression on somebody? Online. Online. Okay. Online. Not in person. With your list. How long did it take for me to leave an impression on you? (laughs) Uh, You're still leaving an impression on me every day. That's nice. (laughs) Ruben and I talked on the phone about an hour every single day. Yeah. So the impression continues to build. Perfect. Tenants have really short attention spans. And if they get a hundred property matches a day, if they have a search for one bedroom downtown condos, they have all of these coming through on a daily basis. And if they see something that doesn't catch mm-hmm. your attention immediately, they're just going to skip on by it. Totally. And it's really interesting. I was doing a pricing analysis a couple of weeks ago on a brand new condo. And in a new condo, we have a lot of data available to us because there's a huge percentage of, of units that just all of a sudden they're available or all of a sudden they're leased. And so I was looking at one bedroom condos in a particular newer building in the city that had all just come online and looking at the difference both in how long it took to lease, so the days on the market, as well as the rental rate that they were able to receive for properties that had professional photos versus properties that did not. The properties, these one bedroom condos in this particular building that had professional photos leased on average six days faster and for $30 more per month yep. than those wow. that did not. Wow. That's huge. And for That's a, a great very, study. very small investment because photos are not expensive. No. You can have a better tenant. You can have a higher monthly rental rate. You can potentially reduce the vacancy in your condo. And... And if they move out, you have those yes. photos. Or if they, they remain yes. yeah. there, that, yeah. you have those photos, yeah. you own them. So you have you have a tenant in there and you know, they've got their own personal stuff. You can't go in and just take photos. It's not going to be nice. Mm-hmm. But if you have the evergreen photos from the first time property showed best, you're always going to have those photos. Even if you want to sell the property down the road. And mm-hmm. you can virtually, virtually stage it. Virtually stage it. You can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have those photos up front, you're shooting yourself in the foot get 
the photos get done. Get the photos. I totally agree. And if you're doing your PDI and you are going to be registering your new unit soon and you're going to have that unit vacant for that short period of time before you get your first tenant, get that professional photographer in there and take those photos. So how much would it cost a landlord for a good set of photos out there these days? Yeah, the photographer that we use, whether it's a one-bedroom condo or a four-bedroom home, charges $175. Okay. So you made a $750,000 investment (laughs) that you're going to hold for the next five years to one day sell for $1.3 million in the future. Is it worth spending the $175? I say yes. Yes. I'm just going to let that one sit. I don't think it really... I was listening to your previous episode about uh, deposit oh my gosh. and the eight oh, yeah. five costs. It's the same thing. Like it's the same thing. And there's these tiny little things that you can do as an as an investor that have a hundred X ROI on them long term. And this is absolutely one of them. Can't stress uh, professional photos enough. Totally agree, guys. I've got a couple of questions for you as well. Um, after a property is listed, what are the next steps an owner can expect in the leasing process? There are so many factors. I mean, so first, let's just start with getting the property on the market. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do that. That's mm-hmm. not difficult. We, whether, you, whether the owner decides maybe, hey, I want to give this a shot and do this myself, or whether we do it, anybody can list a property. It can go... But when we do it, it goes on MLS. It syndicates with Realtor.ca, all of the other third-party sites that the vast majority of tenants will be looking at um, and will come in through their property matches, etc. So what happens after that? Hopefully, we start seeing showings. Mm-hmm. And showings can happen in a couple of different ways. And, and we already kind of discussed showings for a... Or we discussed showings for a tenanted property versus a, a vacant property or, or how that works to list it. When a property is tenanted to show it, we're required to give them 24 hours notice minimum to get in. And so what happens, there's a, there is a program that we use to book all of our showings, whether it's us showing either our own clients or maybe a realtor.ca lead that has expressed interest in the property, or whether it's another agent, they would submit a showing request. And if the property is tenanted, um, that request goes directly to the tenant. And we give them the option to either accept or reject the request. Um, by law, we are not required to, but we all feel like that is the fair thing to do. Sometimes agents will just auto-approve every showing request with 24 hours notice. In order to have a successful listing, you need to have smooth communication. You need it to run well between all parties in that and your existing tenant is included in that. If the property is vacant, it's just a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, then that comes with having having vacancy and and losing out on a month, maybe a month and a half of rent. But if a property is vacant, you can you can book a showing really with zero notice, get in, and it it's just really a lot smoother. After showings, let's say that there is somebody interested in the property. Ooh. What would we do that? Well, at that point, the typically uh, we're dealing with an agent on the other side representing a tenant. And if they're a good agent, they will give us a call and say, Hey, uh, Jerome, Ruben, my client is interested in your property. I don't know if we're bringing an offer for it yet, but please let me know if there's anybody else interested. Now, Jerome, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. How are they going to know how to reach out to you? Oh, that's a really good question, Ruben. Well, at Fox Marin and most good agents in the city (laughs) put their cell phone number on everything. And I can't express how frustrating it is when you're representing a tenant or representing a buyer, um, like I did an hour ago when I was showing a property and my client is interested in potentially buying this. And I cannot find the cell phone number for the agent. And I can't find out information. I've now got to go on an internet search and go down rabbit holes or call other agents and they'd say, hey, do you have this agent's cell phone number in your your contacts? Because I can't get a hold. Or call the office and ask for them to age. And that's, if, and that's if you get the office too, because it's Sunday afternoon and it's likely yeah. closed now. So you're getting the answer service, right? Which, so it's all bad. It's all bad. So put your damn cell phone number on your listing. 
Exactly. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And so we get that call. The call comes in. We have a little chat and we say, okay, well, yeah, absolutely. We'll let you know if there's anybody else that calls us up in the same fashion. And once they get to a certain point and they're serious about the property, they'll draft up an offer and submit that offer over to us as the listing agents. What comes into us is a few forms around um, how to offer on a property, an agreement to lease, uh, confirmation of co-op, blah, blah, blah. But most importantly, out of everything, is the tenant package. So in that tenant package, there's a rental application called the Aurea Form 410. This is kind of a high-level description or profile of the tenants that have submitted the offer. Inclusive of that, we also ask for photo ID, so it could be driver's license, passport, and uh, we'll ask for credit reports that are sent in as well, uh, employment contracts if they are employed, um, pay stubs if they are currently employed, and in some situations, we ask for additional documentation. So we take all of this information in. We draft up a quick summary email to our client saying, this offer came in. Here's a high-level overview of it. Here's a high-level overview of the tenants. We will complete our due diligence and our tenant screening and let you know uh, what we think of the whole situation. We're also required to notify other agents that have heard through the property or shown the property, as some people say, to let them know that we've received an offer on it in case they want to step up and make an offer. What happens after that, Ruben? Wow. <laughs> we will do our best to do our due diligence. And really, that is everything from verifying employment, mm-hmm. doing a deep dive, picking apart their credit report that they've sent in. And really, most importantly, it's contacting references. And we have seen everything. We've really seen it all. Sometimes, perfect scenario. You have a teacher who makes a good income, who has a 750 credit score, who has fantastic rental history. That's not the norm. Um, We see a lot of scud, I can say. And a lot of... Scud? Scud. What's scud? scud? Tell us about the scud. Is that a word? Tell Uh, us what scud is. I don't know. A lot of... Does it stand for something? Isn't that a missile that was used in the uh, uh, invasion of uh, Iraq? Invasion of Iraq? Yeah, I don't know. And Ian says it's not a word. I I trust Ian there. He's he's the one in a book. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I mean, but really, we we do a deep dive into everything that we need to do a deep dive into. A lot of the time, sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's not. And so, once we get all of that information, we will put it. After the nice package that Jerome mentioned earlier, we'll say, hey, look, this is what we found out, and this would be our recommendation. If we have any doubt in our mind, we will always, or we are not hesitant to not recommend proceeding. You should. Going back to what we spoke about earlier of quality of tenant versus rental rate, we are not afraid to say, we don't think this is the right tenant for you. Ultimately, it is always the property owner's decision. Of course. But, and they're the one who has to sign off on it. But we were conservative in our recommendations because of everything that we discussed previously. Are the red flags credit score? Is the red flag their employment history? Or is really the red flag come down to the references? That's, it's, it's interesting because we were talking about this before as well, where there's not really one thing. It's, the, and tenant screening in general or figuring out if a tenant's going to be a good fit is encompasses everything. And some people don't have credit. Some people don't even have a driver's license. Some people don't have you know employment. And every single time you have to take into consideration all of the factors to make a decision. We're seeing an increase in fraudulent documents right now. Fake credit reports, fake employment letters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like we're you know magicians and we can figure this out and we're like, that's a fake credit report based on this pixel there or whatever. But when you take the whole package into consideration and you start to notice red flags of information not making sense or their addresses on their credit report doesn't line up with their rental application and they had a job in Calgary, but they were dating somebody, or who knows, whatever the case is, there's a whole process that we need to go through and take into consideration all this information there's not really one thing or another that causes the red flag. 
how easy is it to get fraudulent documents? I think Ruben, you were telling me there are Facebook groups that you can that advertise rental packages that you can buy for two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollars. And and they'll have somebody even answering a phone. They'll have people reference. answering the phones. We'll get an employment letter for a well known company and the number on the bottom of the uh of the letter will only be maybe one digit off of what the actual contact for that company is. And there'll be somebody sitting there on the other end of that phone answering. And a lot of the time, you know, when they pick up right away and say, oh, yeah, I know this person, or they make this, if you call into a company, HR takes time, they've got to look up, they've got to go into their internal systems, they've never met the person Mm -hmm. before. Yeah, and what company doesn't have an answering machine basically as the first step, right? Press one for HR, (laughs) press two for fraudulent documents. Did you say answering machine? You know what I mean. I haven't seen one of those. Okay, Ralph, what would you call that? What would you call that then? What what is that? Answering service. Oh, geez. Okay, answering service. I (laughs) I have another question about this. So you're screening the tenant and let's just say everything's checking out. So they do have a great job. Their references are great. um, Their credit score is healthy. What about affordability and rent? And how does that come into play? Great question. That's a really, really good question. The average one bedroom last month was just under $2,500 a month in downtown Toronto. That's crazy. And if you project that out, all these sort of general rules you'll find on the internet about a good rent to income ratio is about 33% of your income. You need to factor in a lot of things here. If somebody's got a credit file where they've got monthly payments for student debt, if they've got a job that is contract, all of these things play into it. It's not uncommon for us to see tenants with a 45, 50% rent to income ratio that are actually great quality candidates. We'd love to see somebody with 20%, but yeah. that's not always, not always possible. And based on that $2,500 a month, uh, one bedroom condo, you kind of got to be making like dollars $70,000 pre-tax per year in order to really be able to afford this. And that's just mind blowing. My first job, I was making $30,000 a year and somehow managed to afford to live downtown. Yep. It, affordability is going out of the window right now. And if, you know, companies don't team up with uh, employees' wages rising, you're going to have to see more tenants moving in, sharing spaces together. That's why we're seeing such an increase in fraudulent documentation. Well, that's exactly it. It's the number one driver behind selling fraudulent documents. Mm-hmm. Having somebody say, these people might have jobs. They might have good jobs, but maybe they are making $60,000 a year. And they're trying to live by themselves and they need to maybe try and maybe they alter their employment letter or, or make fake pay stubs to show that they're making $80,000 a year in order to earn that, uh, or in order to qualify, really. Right. Um, and we've seen that so many times. It's too many to count. So are you saying that there's some decent, honest, hardworking fraudsters out there? <laughs> <laughs> there are some decent, honest, hardworking fraudsters that are trying Perfect. to live in downtown Toronto. We just have to be fair about that. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Ruben, I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned having a 750 credit score, but to anybody that's mm-hmm. watching that is not familiar with the credit score system, can you explain what, what is a good credit score and, and what isn't and where I would get that score? I mean, the number one, there are, there are a couple of providers of credit scores. Um, there's The two big ones are Equifax and TransUnion. We like to stick to Equifax. We find that it's the most comprehensive it really breaks down into detail much more than any other service that, that we have access to. In terms of what a good score might be, it can, in my opinion, score is not everything. You can have excellent credit and have a lower score because you just don't have a big credit history or a big credit file. But according to kind of your traditional, um, what is a good credit? What is bad credit? Usually around. 680 to 700 is considered good. Anything between 700 and 750 is is pretty solid. And then 750 plus is, is fantastic. And there are a lot of factors that go into that score. And again, it's how much debt do you have available to you? What is your usage on that debt that you have available to you? Are you making your monthly payments? Um, but I guess the other thing to consider, it's not only the score. 
you can have a fantastic credit score and have a boatload of debt. Mm. Just because you're making the payments that you're required to make, you can have a 750 credit score, but maybe you have 10 credit cards. Maybe you have a line of credit that you have $60,000 that you're just making the minimum payments on to. And so credit score is important, absolutely. But it is really important. A lot of the time, we will have agents send us just a screenshot of that score. And we say, hey, look, we need the full report. That score without everything else, without all the information, really doesn't mean anything to us. Thank you for that. And what what does it typically cost to get that that score if a tenant's looking to do it? Zero. Oh. It's a law, isn't it? The credit providers have to provide you with credit report for free at least once a year or something. I know Equifax, you can sign up for an account. It's free. You can monitor your credit whenever you want. A lot of people use BorrowWell, I think. A lot of people use BorrowWell. Equifax has gone back and forth between a couple of different systems. But now anyone at any time can log in, can get a full comprehensive PDF of their credit file once a month for free. Jerome, one question for you as well about something that you previously mentioned. You mentioned the the form that people have to fill in with all the information, previous landlord, who they are, et cetera, et cetera. If they have kids or pets, do you have to put that on that form? And and what what are, what are the rules around having pets? On that rental application form, the ORIA form 410, um, a tenant is required to put in if they have pets. If not, if they do have pets, what type of pets are they? Um, some condo buildings have very strict rules around pets being not allowed whatsoever or restricted under a certain size for dogs or not more than three cats or two peacocks, whatever the case is. And <laughs> so you need to know that as a listing agent, what the rules are, because you can't accept a tenant that has you know a certain number of pets or types of pets that are not allowed in the building. Uh, in terms of additional occupants, it's very often that you have you know a spouse or a family where one person's working the other person's not, or there's two parents working and, and kids that are just not, um, they're just residents. They're not going to be on the lease. They're required to put those other occupants on the ORIA Form 410 because it helps the listing agent and the landlord understand full picture who's moving into the property. You know, is it, uh, is it a young professional couple? Is it a young professional couple with 12 kids in a, in a two-bedroom unit? And generally, the more people in a unit, more wear and tear you're going to get on a unit. Not saying you shouldn't accept a tenant that has, you know, five kids, but these are all things that a landlord should know ahead of time as they're making these decisions. Uh, second last question, troubled tenants. So what happens if a tenant's not cooperative when allowing the showing activity? So you keep, you say, how's Tuesday at six? They say no. Wednesday at six? No. Thursday anytime? No. What, what do you do in a case where the tenant keeps refusing? Not much. No. We, we spoke earlier about, about landlord and tenant rights and Mm -hmm. and how tenants do have all the rights. And even though a landlord is permitted to show the property, can't force them to open the door. Right. I mean, I was was thinking, and I was going to throw out there that, I mean, once the new tenant is secured, the showings will stop. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of in a, in a, in an existing tenant's best interest to let people in almost immediately and be like, okay, let's just, let's just Get do this. With. And even for mm-hmm. a tenant who's reasonable, uh, to say, listen, I don't even need 24 hours notice. I'm, I'm out from nine to five. I got to go to the office. So do all your showings from nine to five with like two hours notice. I'm good. There's no pets. There's no kids there. There's nothing to worry about. Don't ch- touch my stuff. But, and then, right, the quicker you lease it, the sooner those showings will stop. So we yeah. should say that it's, for the sake of It stresses tenants. the importance of finding that good tenant. Yeah. Somebody and who's speaking reasonable. speaking with their references and figuring out speaking to their previous landlords, hey, how was it after you found out they were leaving? How how was, how was did showings go? Were they accommodating? And if we are able to get a snapshot on that information before they move in, hopefully that translates on the other end as well. I think um, one of the things you said, Ruben, earlier on is really integral to this whole process is the listing agent's relationship with the tenant and that starts with communication. Mm-hmm. And I think if uh, or when a really good listing agent communicates openly and directly with a tenant from the beginning and says, listen, uh, you know, agents can come late. Sometimes that's beyond my control. We're going to try and run a tight ship here. I'm going to be here to make sure that everything runs as smoothly as possible. If you have any questions, call me. 
because you can have a reasonable tenant and then they have a bad experience with an agent or their client. And then all of a sudden, they're like, this is my house. Mm-hmm. I'm shutting this mm-hmm. down. I have all the rights. And uh, you know, I've seen a lot of situations that could have been avoided um, had uh, a landlord approached the tenant or had their representative approach the tenant properly from the outset to say, look, we're here create a reasonable win-win scenario where for everybody, where you can transition onto a new space with this minimal interruption, I'm here to make sure this works smoothly for both parties. And um, you know, if you go in with that approach from the outset, I think it can avoid a lot of the problems that will come up if you don't have that level of communication from the outset. Yeah, 100%. And what before we list any rental property, I will go and I'll walk through the property. We'll go, we'll walk through the property. We'll have a conversation with the tenant. I always stress to the tenant that I would like you to be there when I come and inspect it. Um, yeah, I'm making sure, I'm trying to make sure that everything's in good shape, but I also want to set those expectations. And one of the things that I always say to them is, Hey, look, we do our best, but not every agent is the same and they will not always come on time. Sometimes they'll come early. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll come late. They're permitted to be here within their half hour booking. But if they show up 45 minutes later, you're well within your right to say, rebook for another day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you missed your again, window. It's, it's the communication. They missed their window. Mm-hmm. We want to be as least intrusive on that tenant as possible. Respectful. To make things respectful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, just, and like, just like listening, here's my cell phone number. I'm going to yeah. text you. It was great meeting you. Um, let me know if you have any questions throughout this process. We want to make it easy. Give me a call. Here's my number. It's a direct line. That way they don't feel like they've just been forced to show open their door to a bunch of people and there's nobody that they can call. And sometimes just vent to. And yeah. This guy came through and he didn't take his shoes yeah. off. And I told him to take his shoes off. He left all the lights on. Left on. <laughs> yeah. It's also, it's also important for the listing agent to say to the tenant, are there any times you want blocked off? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have yeah. friends coming from out of town? Do you like to sleep in on weekends? Like, we can block off to give you boundaries in addition to the 24 hour notice. Uh, and so that really sets the tone. And I think when you do that as well as an agent, you know, not too long after they're calling you up and saying, Hey, uh, I need help <laughs> finding my new place. You're yeah. so awesome it to happens. deal with. So being a professional and, Excellent communicator does pay off. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. find the tenants that are most recept- receptive to the, that time block are tenants who have young children who need yeah. to take naps. And often yeah. when we say, often when we bring it up, they're a bit shocked. They go, oh, yeah, I guess he does nap between eleven and one every day. It would be great. It would be great if nobody came in during that time. I was just gonna say, I wish I have a two-year-old at home. I wish I could just set his nap time and he goes down from two p.m. to four p.m. I don't think that works. That's 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 my nap time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's when the lock goes on the door here. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm reading. I'm doing research. Reading. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay, last question, guys. And this is just anecdotal, a chance for you to just tell a little story if you've got one. If you don't, that's fine too. Before I handed this over to Ralph, I wanted to ask you: Have you ever had an experience where you you accidentally mispriced something and you were too low and it blew up. And and was there a learning there where here's the reason why we'd kind of missed the boat on this one? Or conversely, you put it out there and you're like, why am I not getting the showings I thought I was going to get? Do you have any stories like that for us? No, I bang on pricing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I would... I, I, Good question. <laughs> look, we've had experience, as I would say, on both ends of that. Yeah. And a lot of the times, it's just trying to appease our clients. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they have unrealistic expectations. And we say, hey, look, we're willing to list it at X amount. But if after a week and a half, we're not getting the activity that we're looking for, we need to reevaluate and we're going to come down to this. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I do actually have one story of what ultimately ended up to underpricing a property. It was actually last year, and I had 13 offers on a property come in on my birthday. Oh, nice. Murphy's Law. Yeah. Happy and, birthday. And it was actually because it was a very unique house. And we did our, our, we had very little to compare it to. And the owners said, I'd be comfortable with this number. And I took a look and I was like, uh, I think you might be able to get maybe $200 more. And they were like, no, we'd be fine with this. 
And so that's what we did. That's not common, by the way. That's not common, <laughs> but great client and great landlord. And we ended up with 13 offers. Many of them were well above. I think some of them were up to $500 over asking. Wow. They ended up accepting one at list price. Oh. Because of the quality of tenant. Amazing. Well, Smart. And because they're an experienced landlord exactly. that owns properties all over the city. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. good representation. Well, the best representation, obviously. Not their first rodeo. No. Thank you, guys. Ralph, over to you, buddy. I think one of the things that's so interesting about the rental market is of all the facets of Toronto real estate, I would consider the rental market to be the wild, wild west. Having completed just last year alone, 160 leases, not even taking into account what we've done so far year to date, I bet you guys have seen a lot. Some we can talk about on this podcast and, (laughs) and maybe some that we can save for another time. We see a lot of funky things in paperwork. Let's talk about illegal terms in leases and things that you see uh, in these contracts that have been slipped in. And if you have any examples of that, because I know we've seen some really crazy things. Pretty sure 50% of deals are a good example of this situation when, when we're on the tenant side or when we're on the, the, the listing side and we see people submit massive paperwork. But yeah. the, the story that comes to mind most recently, I can't say the building, I don't think, but let's say in the King and, uh, King and John area. Mm-hmm. We were representing a tenant who was looking at a studio apartment and it was a uh, for sale by owner. So what it means is that the landlord hired, paid a small fee to a real estate agent to basically put the listing on MLS, but that's all they did. Uh, the landlord themselves were dealing with any offers that came in directly. And I was, I think I was traveling at the time. Yeah, was, this was a full team effort. And three or four people on our team worked on this transaction for like a $2,100 a month studio, I think it was. Yeah. We submit an offer and we get a sign back from the mm-hmm. landlord. And this is, I don't know, two days later. Everything happened really slowly here. And in the sign back, they added in, it was like an eight page it schedule B. Ridiculous. Yeah. And, and half of the clauses were just completely bullshit. Stuff that we could never let anybody sign. And what ended up happening was Jerome was traveling. He, he started it off. I, we got the sign back. I was sitting on, I, I do some of my best concentrating while sitting on the floor, either leaning up against. I'm, I'm glad you said the floor. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> you, you hung, you let us hang there for a second. Group, so. Anyways, yeah. I was sitting on the floor. I had my, I had my laptop on my knees. And I was just crossing out and crossing out and crossing out all of these illegal clauses relating to damage deposits, relating to additional occupants, relating to what happens if appliances break, Mm -hmm. cleaning fees, so on and so forth. It was just full of them. And we marked it all off. We had our clients sign it. We made, we made the decision not to go back to these people and say, hey, look, you just sent this over, this document with all, like, we went back to our client, we had her sign all of it, we explained the potential risks of them maybe walking away because they just didn't, they they weren't aware, really. And they accepted it, fully as is, and thanked us. They go, oh, this is a, this is a schedule that we used in the past when somebody else was representing us, they gave it to us, you just made our lives a whole lot easier. We just weren't away. <laughs> and they said, thank you for doing all of that work for us. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, for, for a lease by owner, we, we were getting a very, very small portion of, uh, of the pie there and, and ultimately did all, did the work on both sides. But it is so frequent that we see, um, whether it's a for lease by owner, whether it's other agents, um, and, and, Quite frequently, most of the cl- illegal clauses don't come from the landlords themselves. Yeah, they come from incompetent agents or agents who think that they can game the system. But in reality, clauses are not agreed to or not. All leases are governed by the Residential Tenancies Act, 
And within that act, there's a residential tenancies agreement. And if anything is written on a lease that contradicts that agreement, it's null and void. And so from both parties, there's no point in signing anything that's just not, not, uh, not enforceable. Because if, if there was an issue and if an illegal lease or a lease with illegal clauses ended up in front of the landlord and tenant board, it would just be thrown out. They don't even look at that lease. All they look at is the RTA. What advice would you give property owners to ensure that their leases are fair and legal? And I think going back to what you were saying, it's really important to start everything as a landlord from the right perspective with a tenant, meaning having everything comply with the RTA. So what advice would you have uh, to a landlord about the importance of that and why it's so important? Yeah, you get you have a tenant who doesn't pay rent. They decide, uh, screw this landlord, I'm not going to pay rent. If you end up in the landlord-tenant board eight months later for your hearing and you're, let's say, $25,000 in the hole, the tenant hasn't paid you, and you had put... Wait, at, at eight months, then the tenant doesn't show up. So it gets adjourned. It gets adjourned. <laughs> so now now you're into year one and you're down about 35 in the hole. Down okay. 35, you show up, you take uh, half the day off work to go up to Young and Sinclair to the LTV and you've got all your documents ready. You're standing in front of the adjudicator and they look through your lease and they say, Mr. Mrs. Landlord, half of these clauses are illegal. You force this tenant to sign this agreement uh, knowing that you're a landlord and tried to push all of these illegal clauses in there. I think we're going to side with the tenant here. Um, no penalty, but they need to move out and we're going to wrap this case. Boom, done. Gavel drops and you're shit out of luck. And it is so important to recognize that if you ever end up in a situation with the landlord-tenant board, you need to have your paperwork buttoned down. And there can be no reason you give the adjudicator to ever side with the other party. And, and you cannot give it any ammunition. So all that being said, if you hire good representation, one of the main reasons people hire real estate agents to lease out their properties is to make sure they're not making any of those mistakes, that the paperwork is clean and there's no uh, cascading effects down the road that are going to damage your investment, damage your mental health, damage your bank account. Well said. Um, do you guys have any uh, anecdotes uh, before we wrap this up about situations that we've seen? Maybe anything with the RTA? I would say a very common one has to do with post-dated checks. Yeah. Look, a tenant can give post-dated checks if they want to, but by no means are they required to. And even if they sign a lease saying that they're going to give post-dated checks, ultimately, month three, they can say, hey, landlord, give me my checks back. I'm going to switch over to e-transfer. And by law, the landlord would be required to. And so... Not not so much an anecdote, but that's kind of one of the number one um, misconceptions or number one um, issues that we see with landlords, specifically old school landlords who say, no, this check is worth more. This check is more secure than an e-transfer. Why? A check can bounce. You have to either go on your phone, deposit it, go to the bank. If it's thousands of dollars, sometimes the bank will put a hold on it. A lot of the times checks lead to many more headaches. And that, again, not so much a, a story, but just one of the number one issues that we see in terms of clauses that kind of contradict the, the RTA. It's interesting because that's like a, a, a demographic challenge because I'm thinking how many people under 30 have a checkbook and how long would it take them to order a checkbook mm -hmm. uh, in a situation where they're negotiating a lease and how important would it be to a 60-year-old landlord yeah. who's done something you know, a certain way for a very long period of time? But you're right. like We've seen this come up many times, and it's completely unenforceable from the landlord's perspective. And then when it comes to those additional requests that may come in and offer like a pet or somebody's asking for know, like key deposits, stuff like that, you can communicate about that very openly, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have to say, one of the beneficial uh, parts of being on a team, and Fox Marin is the best example in the city of this, is Ruben and I spend so much time on the phone, calling each other, running things by each other. If we've come across a question one of us hasn't handled 
or maybe I've been handled in a while, we give each other a call. We call Ralph, we call Corey, we call whoever we need. We call a lawyer, we call a paralegal to get the right answer okay. and not fly by the seat of our pants. Like yeah. we need your housing is a human right. And there's so much that can go sideways so quickly mm-hmm. if it's done properly. And a lot of new landlords just don't recognize that. And if you have a team behind, as a landlord, if you have a team behind you, um, real estate wise, legal wise, um, other experienced landlords that can help you navigate all these things specifically around the legalities where that's predominantly where the major risks are for you as a landlord and financially as an investment, that's how to set yourself up best as a landlord. And we do a pretty damn good job, I think, of supporting our clients that way. It makes Taking so the sense. Wild West part out of it. And, and on the same note, we will take the time that is needed to find out the right information. If it takes, if it needs to take an extra day because we can't find those answers, so be it. Yeah. We need to make sure that from everybody's perspective, all of our I's are crossed and our T's are crossed. Yeah. Slow and steady I wins I the race. I flipped that around there. Yeah. But <laughs> we got you. Dotted I's and crossed T's. Yeah. Slow and steady wins the race, right? Don't, don't there rush it. Yeah. Don't jump into it. It'd be a very expensive mistake. Corey, Ralph, any more questions for our boys who have been amazing at, uh, yeah. 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 Just, just a wealth of knowledge. Okay. So I'm going to ask, uh, Ruben and Jerome each one final question. All right. And it's going to be the same question. It's not even for me. I'm stressed out. Okay. (laughs) In five years' time, we know a one bedroom rents today for $2,500 on average. Five years time, what is your prediction for a one oh, bedroom good rental? Question. I'm going to start with Jerome. I think a 10 to 15% year over year increase is not crazy. Uh, my math is not great compounding. Let's put that at. I asked 30, for a number, not a formula. 3250 <laughs> in five years for a one bedroom. Okay, I think a 15% year-over-year increase is crazy. Um, but I think that 6 or 7% is is uh, very doable and very trackable. And I think if we look over the course of the past however many years, that's probably what we've seen. I'm going to say the average price of a one-bedroom condo in five years is $29.50. All right. It's, uh, it's interesting because... Uh, purpose-built rental averages for one bedrooms have just crossed the $3,000 barrier. So we are seeing um, in a certain segment already uh, $3,000 for uh, for a one bedroom. So uh, I think you're both wrong. And uh, I think it's going to be $3,500. I don't even know what the math and is. And you're fired. Get out. <laughs> $3,500 for a one bedroom? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's going to be like New York City. Two people are going to be living in a one bedroom. Well, that that that's exactly. And then we're going to have exactly to revisit why. this whole conversation because quality of tenant, tenant screening, rent to income, will all be completely different. Yeah, one hundred percent of your income. <laughs> <laughs> Don't eat. Yeah, it's Live true. Somewhere I mean, there does eat. there does there does come a cap where where the numbers don't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's only there's going to be lesser and lesser supply and more and more demand, and people are going to start shacking up to to make payments happen. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a big number. I think we can all agree on that. How's how's yeah, that? Three yeah. I think it's going to be an absolute luxury to be able to afford to rent a one bedroom by mm-hmm. yourself. You're putting yourself in a very small percentile that point five years from now well just just look at a just look at a one bedroom right now in pre-construction if you're buying pre-construction downtown toronto it's not built for five years that's close to a million dollars that's what the market is Mm -hmm. telling you for the future pricing that's what people are paying now so how much would a one million dollar one bedroom rent for yeah, a lot. Still mm-hmm. negative cash flow. That's just a sure. little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we said earlier, you know, it's not a cash flow business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, being a landlord in Toronto real estate. The thing is, though, people's mindsets are going to have to change. Like when I graduated from university, I lived in a house with five people, four girls and a guy, and one washroom, and we all paid our 
chunk of change for rent. And it just what like that's how people live. Not everyone graduated from university and moved to Liberty Village and lived in a six hundred mm-hmm. square foot condo mm-hmm. with a balcony and a parking spot. Yeah. I, yeah. When 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 I graduated university, there was no Liberty Village. Yeah. I don't even think bottle service had been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't understand how these people are affording I have no it idea at, either. out of school at this point here. So side hustle, oh. making fraudulent documents, yeah. boom and business. <laughs> well, I had a conversation yeah. yesterday with an agent who I had submitted an offer and he goes, when I was 25 year, years old, I was renting a basement apartment. Why do these girls like, how, how come they get to live in a $900,000 condo? Or guys. Or guys. Yes, mm-hmm. they just happen mm-hmm. to be girls in this situation. Yes. Their parents. But um, ultimately, even look at a basement apartment. A two-bedroom condo split in two is less expensive than renting a basement apartment by yourself right now. Absolutely. Interesting times, for sure. Well, guys, thank you so much. Just a wealth of knowledge and experience. It was so fun to have you guys here. Uh, on behalf of myself, Corey, and Ian, uh, we're definitely going to have you back. Love having you guys here, and uh, and maybe and maybe next time, Jerome, you can bring uh, your buddy Joey Bag of Donuts with you. <laughs> I'd, like I'd like to meet Joey. Yeah, I would love to bring him. Go Joey Chestnut. That would be impressive. Yeah. As we close this deep dive into the world of renting out properties in Toronto, we hope that you found today's discussion enlightening. From understanding why a real estate agent is a valuable partner in your rental journey to demystifying the steps involved in tenant screening and lease agreement creation, we've aimed to equip you with the knowledge you need. The rental market in our vibrant city is full of opportunities, but it's also packed with potential pitfalls. We hope that the insights and anecdotes shared by our panel today have demonstrated the importance of due diligence, legal knowledge, and a well-rounded approach to renting out your property. Whether you're a seasoned property owner or just beginning your journey, remember that your real estate agent or agents is an invaluable resource. They're here to add value, minimize stress, and help you navigate this complex landscape. Guys, once again, thank you for joining us. Lovely to have you. Thank you for all of your insights. Corey, I'm going to call upon you. What do we always say? Contact us. We're nice. And Ralph, what do we want our viewers to do before they sign off? Two things. Hit that like button. Smash that subscribe button down below. (laughs) Woo! Thank you, team. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Great having you on. Thanks for joining us. That was fun.